Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of What You Didn't Know About the Bible. Uh, today, I'd like to uh, pick up uh, a question I brought up in the really the very first episode of our podcast. I'm talking about Jesus didn't have a Bible, and we really concentrated more on like the the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and and how they came to be the formation of that canon and and I, I alluded briefly to the New Testament and and the, the manuscript tradition behind the New Testament and one of the things that um, surprised me um, when I went from church been in church all my life and I go to college and begin to study uh, the Bible the Old and New Testaments from an academic perspective there were a number of issues, you might say, or facts, just common information that scholars know that our professor tried to teach us, and sometimes even gently. <laughs> and and it was there was always these moments in the classroom where I felt a little overwhelmed because, I mean, there's just certain things that you never hear in church. And yet, they are commonly known and understood among those who spend time reading about the Old and New Testaments. And for example, uh, one of the things that shocked me when I began to take a course in elementary Greek, and of course the whole course, we spent a year <clears throat> learning just basic Greek grammar so we could just even you know make heads or tails out of the simplest Greek in the New Testament, which is the letter 1 John. We eventually found out, and I think maybe we heard this in our New Testament introductory class as well, introduction class, and this came as a surprise. We do not have the original manuscripts of the New Testament. I mean, if you're talking about the you know, the original copy, what Matthew actually wrote with his own pen and paper. We don't have that. As a matter of fact, we don't have a single book of the New Testament. We don't have the original manuscripts. And that never came up in church. Our pastor never brought that up. We never were taught that in Sunday school. But I'm telling you, when I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, that can't be right. I've never heard this before. Why didn't somebody tell me that we don't have, you know, the original manuscripts. And so when I began to teach college, I, whenever I approached the subject, basically in my introductory course of the New Testament, as well as when I would teach Greek, I, I had to be very careful because, again, like 90% of the class, if not more, and these are students, most of them came from, you know, evangelical churches. They'd been in church all their life. They had never heard it. And when I would broach the subject that we don't have the original manuscripts, the autographs of the New Testament writers, they would sit there in shock like, wait a minute, if that's true, then how do we have our New Testament? I mean, how do we, especially when you find out the manuscript tradition is so varied, um, and the way I would try to tr help illustrate, you might say the assumptions we have when we come to read the English New Testament, for example, um, is I would ask them, I would say to the students, you know, do you have a New International Version? 
of the New Testament. Anybody have a copy of that? And invariably, you know, several would say yes, because there for a while the NIV was really, really popular. It's kind of fallen out of uh, favor, you might say, or at least popularity. There's so many other competing translations. And we can talk about that as well. Why do we have so many different translations? We'll do that on another podcast. But I would say, okay, uh, thank you. Uh, uh, take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 18. And I want you to read uh, verse 11 of Matthew 18. Whoever has one, just go ahead and get your Bible out. So they'd open up and they'd, they'd you know, find Matthew 18 like a sword drill. And they would go to verse 10. Of course, once you find verse 10, of course, you got to find verse 11. And uh, they would all kind of sit there in disbelief and go, we don't. We don't have a verse 11. I go, what do you mean? I mean, you got a verse 12, don't you? And they go, yeah, it's right there. I, okay, so we all know that, now, of course, I was trying to be playful. We all know that 11 comes after 10. You have to have a verse 11. If you if you have a verse 10, you got a verse 12. There's got to be a verse 11. And they would sheepishly say, oh, it's not in our Bible. And, of course, other students would raise their eyebrows and, What? What do you mean that verse is not in our Bible? What is that verse? Well, that verse is, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, or the Son of Man came to seek the lost. And that same verse shows up in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 19, verse 10, in the story of Zacchaeus. Word for word, same verse. So here's the question, and I'm sure some of you, whatever English translation you use, I'm sure some of you have noticed that, how the NIV translators made the decision, you know, this verse, and we'll get to the reasons why, is really, there's a very, very high probability Matthew did not write that verse. So how do they know that? I mean, how did, we, how did verse 11 get into the Bible? you might say, and, and why do scholars in these recent translations of the last hundred years either have a marginal note going, the earliest manuscripts don't have this verse, or like in the NIV translation, they just completely omitted it, and they have a footnote that says, some later manuscripts have, and then that, that line, the Son of Man came to save what was lost, and that immediately began set... Uh, my students to begin to say, okay, what happened here? Okay. The technical subject of study uh, to which I'm referring is New Testament textual criticism. And this is something I've always been fascinated by, even as a, as a college student when I discovered, you know, that we don't have the autographs. Uh, so how do we know the New Testament is reliable. You know, if we don't have what Matthew wrote, here it is. I've got an English translation, and right next to my Bible right now, and I have the NIV in front of me, I have a Greek uh, New Testament, and, you know, there it is. But how do I, did Matthew write these words? Evidently, he didn't write verse 11. Well, okay, if he didn't write verse 11, how do we know he wrote verse 10 and verse 12? And, of course, there's a whole nother set of scholarly questions, and I don't want to get into this today, but, you know, some scholars who, who point out rightfully that the Gospels are anonymous. Nowhere does the author sign on, right? You know, I, I am Matthew, and I'm writing this Gospel. And the earliest manuscripts do have some indication 
of, you know, that it, it, it was attributed to Matthew. But uh, we know that more than likely those titles were added later. In other words, the title, according to Matthew, uh, is there because church tradition developed early that Matthew's the author of this book. But that's another question, the whole question of authorship. This scholars get into. What I'm talking about is the text itself. So you may have noticed at times, whatever your translation, you have marginal notes, or even you have, you know, a, 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 like the NIV, you've got a verse that's omitted or sometimes put in brackets. Have you noticed that? And so why is it in brackets? And you'll see the footnote that says, well, the earliest manuscripts don't have this verse. Now, I have to say that when these translations came out, there's a whole group of people, and they like to call themselves, you know, the King James Version only, uh, because those that verse shows up in King James Version. And, and in an attempt to, you might say, uh, protect what they think is the integrity and authority of God's Word, and really the, the superiority of the King James Translation, the authorized version as it was known when it was first published by King James II. Um, they even say, well, look what these liberals are doing. They're removing verses from God's word. And they notice several times in the manuscripts where these translations will say, instead of saying the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll just say Jesus or Jesus Christ without Lord or just Lord Jesus without Christ. And some of those verses, they'll go, they're trying to remove the, you know, these liberals are trying to deny that Jesus is Lord or trying to deny that he's the Christ, which is absolutely ridiculous. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But just this simple phenomenon, this simple reality that we don't have the autographs is troubling for some people. Now, some of you may not even have known that, but I want to explain why it shouldn't be troubling. In fact, I don't think, and most text critics will argue this, we may not have Matthew's autograph, but we have what he wrote. And you go, wait a minute, how can that be? And here's the reason why. is because we have thousands of manuscripts. <laughs> thousands and thousands of manuscripts of Matthew. And really, almost all the books of the New Testament. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. Over 5,000. And that's not even counting the early translations. Like when Christianity expanded, primarily because of Paul, um, it shouldn't surprise us that some of the earliest translations originated out of place, places closest to Israel, like northern Egypt. And so the language that was spoken in that time was Coptic. It's a language that used Greek script. And so the earliest translations of these New Testament documents are written in Coptic, in Syriac, you know, Syria is just north of Israel. And, and we know Christianity went west pretty quickly because uh, before Paul could even get to Rome, there was a church there. And so we have early Latin translations of the New Testament. So hundreds and hundreds of early translations, thousands and thousands of Greek manuscripts, and we, we haven't even gotten to, 
you know, some of the places where the early preachers, we call them the church fathers, where the early preachers quoted uh, New Testament, the Greek, the, the fathers that wrote in Greek, they, they quoted Greek New Testament, and their quotation is uh, evidence, right, that we can use to say, okay, what is it that Matthew wrote when Origen quotes Matthew? Matthew wrote a commentary on, or uh, Origen wrote a commentary on Matthew. Or, or not only these early fathers, Greek and Latin, the later Latin fathers, when they wrote in Latin, they're, they're quoting Latin uh, translations of the New Testament. That Those are witnesses to the New Testament. But also, it was the habit of early Christians to use a variety of scriptures. We would call them like what shows up in the back of our hymnal, responsive readings. They would take a subject like, say, the deity of Christ, and they would basically cull a bunch of familiar scripture, we would call it, or passages from the New Testament. And they would teach it for catechetical purposes. They they would teach it to, they, they would use these kind of a list, a catena, a list of scripture from the New Testament to teach new converts. But also they would have large passages of the New Testament read as an act of worship in early Christian gatherings. So, and we have those, they're called lectionaries. We have that. So here it is. The New Testament, as a work of antiquity, it is the best attested work of literature. There are more copies of the New Testament, and it, it far exceeds any other great work of antiquity that was written in Greek this time by the philosophers, by the poets. I mean, we have a handful of copies of Homer. We've got a handful of copies of Euripides. I mean, we've got, but oh my goodness, the New Testament, it exploded in popularity. And, they, and it was copiously copied <laughs> and distributed all over the Mediterranean world. So in certain respects, here it is, the gift of having so many manuscripts. And we know in all those manuscripts, somewhere is what Matthew wrote because <laughs> it's so well preserved. And yet, here's the challenge. There's not a single verse in the New Testament where all these manuscripts agree word for word. Not one. In other words, in every verse of the New Testament, there is variation in the manuscript tradition. The Greek manuscripts, the early versions, the fathers, their quotations, the lectionaries. There's not a single verse in the entire New Testament where there is a unanimous opinion, you might say, or a preserved, and all the manuscripts agree, yes, this is the exact wording with regards to spelling of words, with regards to verb tenses, with regards to word order, which I'll get to in a minute why that's important for Greek. Not a single verse where they all the manuscripts agree. So what is obvious? If we don't have the autographs, and there's not a single verse, for example, and this is true for all the New Testament, but I'm just using Matthew as an example. And there's not a single verse in Matthew where all these different manuscripts agree word for word. In other words, there's variation. Then here's the question. Who makes the decision? Well, we are going to go with these manuscripts and not those manuscripts. You hear what I'm saying? Who makes that decision? Well, 
for the last basically 130 or 50 years, it's scholars who've made that decision, text critics. And the reason they make this decision is not only because they spend a lot of time studying the manuscript tradition, but they themselves begin to put them the, themselves to the task of trying to find early Greek manuscripts. And some of them are pretty fantastic stories. And there's this one text critic by the name of Tischendorf who found uh, one of our earliest copies of the Gospels. And he found it in, a, I think, a monastery in Sinai, the famous mountain. There was a monastery on top of that mountain where Moses received the law. And it was, and part of the manuscript was in a trash bin getting ready to be burned. <laughs> and it was like, no, you, I mean, it almost uh, saved, you know, from the clutches of the fire. And that manuscript, by the way, is called Sinaiticus, named after Sinai, that Tischendorf found. And it is a fifth century. It's, it, it could be, some have suggested, it's the first, it's the earliest Christian Bible that has, you know, in one big, big, massive book, what we call the New Testament. And when, when text critics began to go around all over the world, going to monasteries, going to libraries, I mean, there's, and they begin to dig in the trash heaps of Egypt because of the arid climate, manuscripts survive much better there than in more humid places. They begin to discover not all kinds of manuscripts, but also New Testament, Greek New Testament manuscripts. And the more they discovered, get this, the earlier the manuscript they found. Because up to that point, the basis, for example, of the King James Version, all they had for the Greek text that basically the King, King James Version relied upon, all they had was like one fifth century manuscript that was bilingual. It, had, it has Greek on one side and Latin on the other. It was called Codex Biza. They had that, but they had a handful of very, very late manuscripts that date in, you know, the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, a thousand years removed from when the New Testament was written. And those manuscripts didn't disagree much. And so that's what the King James Version is based on. So when these, these text critics are finding all these manuscripts, and they're much, much earlier than the manuscripts the King James Version is based on, the whole idea is, oh my goodness, the closer you get to when the New Testament was written, obviously, the more reliable you have a manuscript. Because with time, and we all know this, more and more corruptions enter in to the text. The more it's copied, the greater chance, handwritten copies, the greater the chance that errors, corruptions are introduced. Okay. So that's why in the last 150 years, We've got all these English translations that come out for a variety of reasons. One is because more and more work is being done on the Greek New Testament. Here, although we, we have all these manuscripts, there's still manuscripts being discovered, by the way. And not only that, over the 5,000 plus Greek New Testament manuscripts, here, we don't have enough text critics to read every single line of all those manuscripts. We still haven't gone through all of them. I was a part of an international Greek New Testament project where American and British and German scholars were going to go through every shred of the manuscript 
evidence. And we only did that for Luke and John. And that's, you know, I don't know where the project is now because I, I left it. But there's a lot of work to be done. And of course, the great majority of those manuscripts are much later. They're, they're, they're much, they're like, they date, you know, 8th century, 9th century and, and beyond. But the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament written on papyrus paper, um, they are fragile. They're hard to find. There aren't as many of them. But we have, get this, we have a fragment of John's gospel, like eight verses, I think, from John 18, that dates around A.D. 100. So not only is the New Testament the best attested work of antiquity that has abundantly more manuscript witnesses than any other Greek work at that time. But it also, we, it, it has the earliest manuscript evidence to it. I mean, if John's gospel was written towards the end of his life around, you know, 80, 80 or 90, and this manuscript, this fragment dates around 100, oh my goodness, we have a fragment that comes within 10 years of when John's gospel was written. Okay. So to get back to the question, if we have all these manuscripts, and we haven't even gone through all of them yet, <laughs> I mean, there's a pattern, and you go, well, wait a minute, there could be some great reading. Well, for the most part, these later manuscripts, they, they reach a level of unanimity that if you just, uh, basically, they'll do some test passages. All right, what about John 10? What about, you know, this chapter? And they'll agree almost verbatim. So we know that there are a certain type of text and we can categorize them with it. Because basically, when you take all the Greek New Testament manuscripts, they fall into three basic types of text. The earliest manuscripts are, show a kind of evidence that they're not only early, but they almost describe quickly corrected corruptions, like obvious silly mistakes. There's another set of manuscripts that date about the same time. And they're not as plentiful as well, but they there seems to be more kind of obvious errors in the text, like spelling mistakes and verb tenses. And part of the problem is in these Greek manuscripts, if you read it, pick up an old manuscript, all the letters are in caps and there is no word division. There is no space between the words and there is no punctuation. I mean, it's just one continuous line of letters. So... It's easy if you're going to try to make a copy of that to perhaps drop off a letter or miss a letter, uh, miss a word. Your eyes might miss a whole line, and we'll talk more about scribal habits and mistakes in a minute. But the second group of manuscripts that are as that are similarly they're they're early as the this uh, one group that seems to self-correct. They seem to correct these. This other group has some pretty obvious mistakes that were preserved and then this third group are a much later manuscripts that tend to the habit is if you've got a if you've if you've got a manuscript before you that's an early one and you've got one that's a little later and the later manuscript dates several hundred years later reads verse 11 Matthew 1811, but the early manuscripts do not read Matthew 1811. Then this one batch of manuscripts say, you know what? Rather than omit that verse, we're going to include it. We're going to hang on to as many words as we can. 
And so like a snowball rolling down a hill, these later manuscripts just collected more and more and more readings. Sometimes readings of the scribes would be put in the margins that weren't really meant for correcting the text. And those marginal scribal notes would somehow get into the text itself, into the New Testament. And the scribes later would just add it because they, they thought the best thing to do was just keep collecting, keep collecting like a snowball rolling down a hill. Now, that's a very simple <laughs> and brief way of describing a very complex tradition. And yet, generally, that's the case. We have three kinds of Greek manuscripts, earlier ones that basically don't preserve as many like, obvious corruptions, another group of early manuscripts that seem to preserve these early kind of scribal errors, and a bunch of later manuscripts. And by the way, they are a bunch of these later manuscripts that, like a snowball, just collected as many readings as they could, even, and sometimes it's evident in that tradition that the marginal notes would make their way into the text. So, when text critics then, who know Greek manuscripts really well, sit down to decide, and by the way, no single person makes a decision. Most of these Greek editions of the Greek, uh, the edition, uh, critical editions of the Greek New Testament are produced by a committee of scribes. Scribes, not just from a certain religious tradition, by the way, uh, you know, they've got Catholic and Protestant, and, but also scribes uh, that are British and German and American. I mean, so a committee produces this and these text critics come together, right? And they, they know these three basic types of text. They see how the manuscripts group up. This group doesn't have Matthew 11, uh, 18, 11. This group does partially. And this group, the, the third group, oh, yeah, it's got it. Even expands upon it. And it seems like it takes Luke 19, 10 and the fuller, you know, and that version of, of this saying. And there it is. And they, so they, how do they decide? Should Matthew 18, 11 be in our Bible or not? Did Matthew write it or not? So this is what they look at. And again, I'm, I'm making this, I'm simplifying this, but this is basically what they do. They study scribal habits. They, they, they recognize that the typical mistakes or corruptions that would enter the text that scribes would make. And some, some of those mistakes came because Manuscripts would be executed, they'd be produced in a scriptorium where a, a, a lector would read a manuscript and then he would have like a room of 30 scribes writing down what they heard. So, you know, you could create 30 copies at one moment, right? Now, this is obviously way before the printing press uh, and for the first, you know, 14, 1500 years of the New Testament tradition, they were hand copied. So scribes would, in Greek language, like most languages, there are sounds, especially vowels, that are similar sounding, depending upon the dialect of the person. And you can see some of the mistakes they made in hearing. They heard one vowel, and it was really something else that changes perhaps the, the uh, form of a verb or even the spelling of a noun. Most manuscripts, though, were uh, executed. They were produced by a scribe looking at a mothering copy that we call the exemplar, looking at the mothering copy, and then producing a new manuscript. 
Now, what's interesting about that phenomenon is early on, the paper they used was papyrus. And papyrus paper was made from a reed-like plant that grew in marsh areas, especially in Egypt. And they would take the, they would remove the outer layer of, of the reed and the pith of the plant. They would kind of uh, divide into strips and almost like a, um, a patchwork, right? They would lay vertical strips about 18 inches long of, of this papyrus plant on one side and then horizontal, you know, vertical and then horizontal on the other. And they would take a mallet and mash it together. And, and let, it, let it basically dry out in the sun. Then they would apply oil to make it pliable. And the consistency was about like really thick butcher paper. But you could still see the grain of the plant. And with papyrus paper, you couldn't write on the side where all the strands or the fibers are going vertically. You'd, you know, you'd be hard to write. So they would always write on the horizontal, go with the grain, you might say. And the earliest books the manuscripts, and not just New Testament, but all literature, were written in scroll form. And so the New Testament manuscripts, the earliest, were written on papyrus in a scroll form, written, and you write, you produce this paper, which is pretty cheap to produce, but you could only write it on one side. And the thing about papyrus is it depends on how heavily it was used, but for the most part, if it was really used a lot after about 20 or 30 years the edges of the paper would get so brittle words would literally fall off the page you know it's kind of like those old library books you know you go to library and you see one that's printed like 100 years ago and they tell you don't you dog air it because if you, you know dog air it because if you do it'll just snap off papyrus paper became brittle like that now, they could last a long time, and obviously in very arid conditions. We dug them up out of Egypt, and, they, we, and these are manuscripts that are, you know, 18, 1900 years old. But what happened is the early Christians, they would, you know, after about 10, 20, 30 years, they would see words falling off the page, and, uh-oh, we better make a copy of this before it, you know, it falls apart, especially if it's heavily used. And that's why sometimes, it doesn't happen too often, but why some words were omitted. They just, when a, man, when a scribe would pick that up, that papyrus manuscript, and make a copy of it, there was a word missing, or it may have been part of, part of a word missing, because the edges would deteriorate. With time, Christians began to switch. When the church became public and official under Constantine, the 4th and 5th centuries, that's why all of a sudden... The manuscript tradition changes from papyrus paper to parchment, leather, animal skin. Lamb was the most desirable. And that paper was much more durable. As a matter of fact, it could even be reused. So, and at this, about the same time as well, when Christians began to produce their books on pieces of parchment, they began to use the book form instead of a scroll which was much better because you could stack the pages on top of one another, like our book, bind one in, and you could write with parchment on both sides of the paper, and it was quick referencing, like a scroll. Like you pick up the scroll of Isaiah, and I love that story from Luke 4, you know, where it says they, the attendant handed Jesus the scroll of Isaiah, and he scrolls to Isaiah 61. 
he scrolls in that roll to that place. Imagine how long it took Jesus to stand there and scroll and scroll and scroll and finally find Isaiah 61 without, by the way, chapter and verse divisions, finds it and reads it, and they're surprised, the group is, at his literacy because he's just a carpenter. Um, that that laborious kind of way of reading a text publicly, you might say, and most of them you know, had the text memorized before as they would have the scroll in front of them. The codex, as it's called, the book form, and some scholars even think Christians invented this. To chop up the paper rather than attach it in a long scroll format, they would chop up the paper and stack it one on top, bind the end, and think about how quickly, just with your thumb, you can cross-reference. I can go from Isaiah 1 to Isaiah 61 in a flash. And so New Te- Christians loved the book form. And so right around the 4th and 5th century in the manuscript tradition, all you get, all of a sudden you get a bunch of parchment and you get a bunch of books. And that tells us, okay, these books become more, um, uh, what, long-lasting, they're durable, and it, that became the preferred uh, format for New Testament manuscripts. And all of that helps us date. We know, you know, the form, the format, how the how the words appear on the printed page. Um, if they can, if the New Testament came, the manuscript came from a scroll. We can see it because the columns are very narrow. But the, when manuscripts were produced on books, the margins get, you know, the text gets wider and wider. That helps us date. Scribal, uh, even scribal techniques. Uh, where they abbreviated uh, important words, sacred words, by taking the first letter and the last letter in the Greek and putting a line above it. Like Iesus is Greek for Jesus, and the first letter is an I, and the last letter is an S, Iota Sigma. And so they would take the I and the S and put a line above it, and you know that's Jesus. So some of the scribal habits we can date by looking at the kind of paper they use, the format, how the text appears on the page, the kind of abbreviations they use, all this stuff helps us date. And even sometimes, some manuscripts, the scribe would even tell you when he wrote it, which was kind of cool. But at the same time, not only do you have this, you know, all of a sudden Christianity becomes this public religion, and you've got uh, scriptoria, these official places where scribes lived, and mass production of these copies of the New Testament in parchment that's going to last a long time. And some of them are beautiful and ornate, even written with gold ink, which is amazing, on purple uh, dyed uh, parchment. Some of the earliest manuscripts were obviously underground church, copied in a hurry. And also, we know that there's some of these Greek manuscripts were produced by people who didn't read Greek. They didn't know the language, but they knew it was sacred and they wanted to copy it. And that's why we can see this one group of manuscripts early that goes, oh, it's obvious. They didn't know Greek. All these silly mistakes are introduced. And one batch of early manuscripts go, oh, that's an obvious mistake. And the scribes would correct the errors in the text, the corruptions. And a bunch of others, you know, they just preserve what they got, maybe because they didn't know Greek very well. So text critics then <clears throat> look at all of this. They look at 
the date of the manuscript, the best we can date it. They look at how reliable the text is. It seems to be produced by scribes that know what they're doing versus amateurs. And not only do they look at scribal habits and the typical mistakes they would make, either errors in hearing or errors in sight, like sometimes scribes would be in a hurry. And if you've ever done this, you know, high school, maybe you were sent to the library and copy this article and you're just mindlessly copying it. And you go back to present it and the teacher goes, you left out two or three sentences because the word, uh, the last word of a sentence was the same as one three sentences below and your eye just jumped to that. Some scribes made that same kind of mistake. Or they would duplicate it. They would repeat a, a line that, that was already there. So... Because we know the kind of mistakes scribes made, we can see even the, the corrections scribe made in their manuscripts that they're producing. And different kinds of manuscripts that are much better at preserving good readings compared to these that are kind of reckless and unedited. And we know some of them are really early and some of them are late. They put all that together plus one more bit of information not only does the manuscript evidence give us a wealth of knowledge about what is it that Matthew probably wrote, but some, of, some scholars put themselves to learn Matthean style. I mean, I, I don't want to go too far into this, get in the weeds for you, you know, grammar nerds, but in Greek, there are four different ways to write a declarative sentence. He is teaching. Four different ways to write it with indicative verbs, with infinitives, with participles. I mean, with B verbs, it's amazing. You can say the same thing four different ways in Greek, and it has to do with nuance and emphasis. Not only that, but even in Greek, the word order matters. You know, in English language, the subject typically comes first, and here's the main verb, then you've got the direct object, and then the indirect object, right? In Greek... The nouns have endings that tells you, oh, this is a subject and this is an object. And, you know, and you could put in a Greek sentence, you could put the subject as the very last word. Why? Because the order shows emphasis. So if you wanted to emphasize the direct object, you would put it first. Or if you wanted to emphasize the verb, you would put it first. So word order revealed tone or emphasis. I mean, the way we do that in written form is we put things in italics or we put it in all caps. In Greek, they simply put the word they want to emphasize, regardless of how it functions in the sentence, at the beginning. So if we know a ma a, a, an author's style, like if Matthew likes a particular way of saying something, a particular way of writing something, and you study a style really, really well, that also goes into the mix authorial style. This is what Matthew would typically write. It's the kind of Greek he writes. It's the kind of style he uses throughout the whole manuscript. So if you see a verse, it's like, that is not the way he writes. And you go, oh, so you've got, Matthew wouldn't have written it like that, given the style we have of the whole gospel. The early manuscripts don't have it. Hmm. And since scribes tended you know, the, the later manuscripts, they tended to uh, harmonize the Gospels. Well, this saying is in Luke, but it sounds like it could go here talking about lost sheep. And so scribes may have put it in a marginal note, right? 
This is very similar to the teaching that Jesus gave in Luke, but then some later scribe thought, oh, it's supposed to be included here. This line from Luke 19 about the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost ones. And so we can, we can see at times how due to scribal habits, the mistakes they made, the uh, author's style, you put all of that together and you go somewhere in this vast manuscript tradition, we have what Matthew wrote. It's like sifting for gold, panning for gold. We're trying to find basically what he wrote because we don't have the autographs, but my goodness, in light of all the evidence, we can see what Matthew did and didn't write. And by the way, the example I gave you that started out this podcast, Matthew 18, 11, were a verse is omitted, or we would call it omitted, but it doesn't show up here and other verses are at. That is one of the major variants. And here's the thing. Matthew probably didn't write verse 11 of chapter 18, but we've got it in Luke. It's not like we're trying to take verses out of the Bible. What we're trying to do is say, what is it that Matthew wrote? So, when you've got these text critics working with the manuscript tradition, and these scholars are even, you know, spending countless hours making these decisions, and, and a vast manuscript tradition that preserves what Matthew wrote, and Mark, and Luke, and John, and Paul, we can say with great, and most of, the, most of the corruptions, most of the differences, the mistakes, that scribes introduced are really, really sim uh, silly ones like spelling of words, a different word order. Um, sometimes verb tenses are slightly changed because of a certain kind of letter that's used, a vowel in the Greek language. So like 90% of the places where all the verses vary are these minor, simple stylistic differences. And the 10% that would be considered, oh, that's, that's a significant one. It was the famous New Testament scholar, Bruce Metker, who said, no church doctrine stands or falls on any variant reading. None. So, yeah, with scribes tended to whenever they came to Jesus' name because it was abbreviated, they were so used to Lord Jesus Christ, they would just put it in there. Lord Jesus Christ every time they saw it, whether the word Lord was there or not. And yet, the, Paul is the one who tended in some of his early writings to say Jesus Christ, and his later writings begin to say Christ Jesus, because the word Christ is a title, it's not a name. So if scribes tended to expand, and the, the earliest manuscripts tended to preserve, you might say, the earliest readings, and we can see what happened many, many times. And the great majority of them are very, very minor variations. And it's true, no doctrine center falls. Even if Matthew didn't write Matthew 18, 11, we have it, that same verse in Luke 19, 10, and it's, there's not variation there. Then we can say with great confidence, we do have what Matthew wrote, even though we don't have the autograph. And the same is true for every book of the New Testament. 
But get this, when you pick up your English translation, we haven't even talked about, you know, the, the challenge of taking a Greek language that's ancient and putting into modern English and decisions made there, because there is no translation that's word for word. But when you pick up your English Bible, you need to thank God, and I mean this, for the hundreds of men and women who've committed themselves to spend countless hours in libraries and researching and coming, going to conferences and discussing and committees that produce the critical edition of the Greek New Testament. You need to thank God that we have all these talented, brilliant men and women that have, offered, that have given us a Greek version, you might say, of the most important book of the entire world. We have in our hands God's word because these men and women spent, they labored their whole lives to produce this. And I believe, like most text critics, it is indeed the most reliable work of antiquity. Not only that, for those of us believe, we think, we believe this is God's word. And how he preserved it is an amazing story that would take probably another two or three podcasts to fully explain. Well, I hope you appreciate this very complicated subject. And if, you know, if you want to read more about it, there's some really great introductory books on New Testament textual criticism. One that I would recommend, it was written years ago by Bruce Metzger. Uh, but there's several really good works out there of how we got the New Testament. And uh, we can appreciate the hard work that was done by all these scholars that give us a confidence that what we're reading is the very word of God. Mm-hmm.